Welcome to today's episode with our special guest, Rob Hoskins. Rob is the president of One Hope, an international ministry reaching more than one million children and youth each year with the relevant presentation of God's Word. Now, many mission organizations focus on food, medical, or education programs, but One Hope is fighting what Rob calls scripture poverty, especially among young children all around the world. Since 1987, more than one billion children in 145 countries have encountered a One Hope scripture program. Yep, you heard that right. One billion children in 145 countries. And if you're a parent to young children like me, you're probably familiar with the Bible app for kids, which according to Google Play uh, has over 10 million downloads. Uh, One Hope along with YouVersion are the creators of this brilliant app for children. And as a leader of a global missions organization, uh, today Rob gives us three very important organizational insights into how to lead a, a mission organization in today's spiritual and economic times. So we talk about one, the importance of good research and developing mission strategies, two, the need for leadership development with mission organizations, and then three, the current state of funding models for missions. Uh, Rob provides a tremendous Tremendous perspective of what it means to lead a modern missions organization while remaining sensitive to the Holy Spirit and diligently addressing the real needs all around the world. Uh, we're also very glad to have Rob serve as one of our missiologist council members, along with some of our leading thinkers in North American missiology. It was an honor and a privilege to have had this discussion with Rob, and I'm really glad to be able to share it with you today. So without further ado, Rob Hoskins. Rob, thanks for uh, being on the podcast today. Can you uh, share a little bit about your background and and then also how One Hope got started? Uh, great to be here with you and I appreciate you so much and all the work you're doing. Um, yeah, One Hope, uh, I come from a family of missionaries. So I grew up in Beirut, Lebanon. And then uh, after the war in Lebanon, we were evacuated and uh, spent my high school years in France before coming to the States in my you know mid-late teens. Um, but my family had always been in missions. And uh, so my dad came and started a Christian publishing house. Uh, because he saw the power of God's word to transform people in in a Muslim context in the Middle East and even in a European context. So, mm. our so our family from the very beginning has been involved in Christian publishing um, and uh, really believe in scripture engagement is sort of the passion of our lives. And so, uh, but in 1987, he had a he had a vision um, for the children and youth of the world. He mm. um, just his heart was broken for what he saw happening with kids, but then also. Um, just prophetically, God showed him um, what kids were going to be facing in the generations to come. And we've seen all that happen. That was 30 years ago in 1987. So, um, and, and God gave him a vision, still our mission statement today, uh, to affect destiny by providing God's word to every child in the world. Yeah. So that's what One Hope has been called to do. Um, and we have a very strong local church missiology. Mm-hmm. So, um, so this year will reach about 112 million kids yeah, around yeah. the world in 170 countries with about 300 different programs we've designed, mainly indigenous programs, some global programs. Um, so people say, you know, how do you reach 112 million kids mm-hmm. a year? And I kind of laugh and I go, well, one hope doesn't reach 112 million kids a year, mm-hmm. but we serve literally tens of thousands of churches around the world that through these 300 programs um, that we've designed, help them reach their children and youth. So mm-hmm. um, that in a nutshell is what our passion is, is um, how do we get the next generation, children and youth to engage with scripture? Yeah. Because we really believe that that's uh, foundational. Yeah. And so uh, God's opened tremendous doors through us through these last 30 plus years and uh, just having a blast. Um, and the relationship with you and Ed and the whole team there at uh, Send Institute and what you guys are doing, um, we, we really see that um, 
serving church planting movements mm-hmm. has become such a critical part of our work around the world, and even more recently here in the United States. Yeah. So, um, so this sort of um, relationship between church planting and children and youth, I feel, is is something that the church has got to learn more about. We're all learning more. Yeah. And uh, and and I just see it as such a vital uh, part of of Christ's kingdom plan. Yeah. Uh, in this globalized, connected world we live in. Amazing. Can, can you share about Vision 2030? Uh, what does that all entail? Yeah, so that's uh, that's a plan that we really, uh, in, in 2010, um, I had been um, running One Hope at that point. My dad had turned the reins over to me. Mm-hmm. And this was us really saying, you know, uh, 20 years into the vision, um, what does mission fulfillment look like for us? What does it really mean to affect destiny by providing God's word to every child in the world? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so we sort of mapped out the world and sort of said, where is the church effectively reaching children and young people? Uh, where are we not? Where where are the gaps? And as we begin to do it, we really um, saw that a lot of our organizational outcomes and goals um, really needed to become subservient to um, instead of an organization accomplishing, reaching every child in the world. And so our vision statement actually changed to catalyzing a movement to reach every child in every generation with Jesus through his word. Mm. And so um, One Hope has been much more involved now in actually saying, how do we serve existing ministries, both global, continental, national, um, and, and local city indigenous movements or church movements to uh, serve them with everything that we have and to catalyze these movements around the world um, so that we're not just providing a program or a product for a church to use, yeah. but we're actually getting them to own um, reaching children and young people with the word in their own community. And so Vision 2030, it's an actual roadmap that we've created uh, with an adaptive p- plan. Um, and we have sort of three, three uh, parts of that Vision 2030. One is internal reach. That's uh, what is One Hope actually going to provide in programs and products. One is catalytic reach. So that's existing ministries where we kind of become the intel inside mm-hmm. um, to if they need help with product development, if they need help with research, or if they need funding, um, we'll, we'll actually help catalyze. And we become sort of the minor partner, and they're the major partner. So we've done that with a lot of major ministries around the world. And then the third part is external reach, which is One Hope really has nothing to do but we recognize that um, God's raised up uh, ministries that are effectively engaging children and young people. Yeah. And so we just want to pray for them, encourage them um, and get out of their way and not duplicate or replicate what they're doing. Yeah. So you're not just simply creating resources for, for church planning movements to, to do children's ministry, although you do do that, but you're also providing consultation, you're doing partnership research, uh, those kinds of things as well. Yeah. So actual um, research training, um, you know, we have a very, we, we make a large investment every year in research, mm-hmm. um, to, to really identify what's the baseline, what's the, uh, what's the beliefs and attitudes of young people around the world. Um, and then helping, um, indigenous partners create programs against those realities. Hmm. And, uh, and so then, you know, we used to be a product driven ministry and now we really are a market driven ministry. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's dramatically changed um, who we are as an organization. Now, we still arguably are the largest provider of children and youth scripture in the world. Um, so it's not that we backed away from that. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, the more research we do and the more collaboratives we build and the more partnerships we build, 
actually has created more demand for resources yeah. Yeah. than we ever anticipated. So the organization has grown uh, dramatically over the last 10 years as we've started serving the market. A lot of our listeners, uh, they lead um, organizations, either denominationally or church planning networks. Uh, can you help them uh, help us all understand that that emphasis on research and the need to 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 base your strategies on good research? I mean, when did you come to that conviction? How did you come to that conviction? And what did you do with that? Yeah. Um, so so this is what we call outcome based ministry for us mm-hmm. um, is is why we need to do research. So. Um, what, what I saw with a lot of the evangelical missions community around the world is that we were really good, particularly as Americans, about measuring our outputs. We, we love numbers. And so, um, you know, how many Bibles did we hand out? How many churches did we plant? What was the attendance of those? Um, these are sort of the driving numbers. And, and the, I'm not belittling those numbers mm-hmm. because there are no outcomes without outputs. And, and all of those could be really good indicators or they could be really bad indicators. So uh, for me, I, this was a, a, a real passion of mine, and, and I just began to run into situations around the world. So you go to Swaziland, uh, we have a program there, um, we're running, uh, get on the ground, find out, you know, David Livingston was in Swaziland, yeah, so yeah, it's wow. been around for a while there. Um, 78% of the population claims to be uh, Christians. Uh, the king preaches to the audience uh, once a year from a national stadium on national television. You see churches almost every 200 yards, you know. Um, all of, all of our friends and partners are there. All the Bible societies are there, you know, we're there. Um, and I'm sort of wondering why are we even here? You know, if, if we've done such a great job of quote, penetrating this market, mm-hmm. you know, and, and all of us have these incredible numbers we're showing for Swaziland. Well, by the way, um, they have the highest HIV AIDS rate in the world. Mm. Uh, you know, life expectancy is down to 33 years of age for men. Um, the United Nations says it could become the first extinct nation in the world. So, you know, how do you, uh, how do you wrap your mind around this paradox of a Christian nation that's dying of sexual dysfunctionalism? Yeah, well, and, and what I would well. say is that we have uh, tragically measured our outputs as if they were outcomes. And so uh, as a missional leader, I began to say, look, um, outputs are important, but outcomes are more important. So let's begin with the end in mind. Um, what are we really hoping to accomplish among children and young people? Uh, what is it they need to know from the scriptures? And so you can't do that without research. If you don't have a baseline, you don't even know what you're measuring against. You don't even know what outcomes you're, you, you want to measure in that context. So um, there, for instance, one of our major outcomes would be what's the age of sexual debut? I mean, because if you can get the age of sexual debut from 16 years old down to 14 years old in Swaziland, you reverse the HIV AIDS problem there. Yeah. Well, in my theology, um, the kingdom of God has not come to Swaziland until that outcome happens, until yeah. we have well, a contingency of our children who understand God's word enough to know, um, to, to counter the, the cultural narrative. The, mm-hmm. the cultural narrative right now is you're not a man until you sleep with a woman. Mm-hmm. The more women you have, the bigger the man you are. The king has nine wives and 52 concubines. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, well, no, actually, um, that's not what the Bible says is a man. Um, and so, taking God's word and applying it to cultural context is, is really the job of good scripture engagement. Yeah. So, so, so now I'm measuring not so much. So Madagascar, number one diagnostic question among four to fourth to sixth graders. Uh, this would be a typical diagnostic question for us within our research. If a problem comes to your family, what should you do? Number one answer in Madagascar, dig up the bones of your ancestors and sleep with them. So wow. this is witchcraft, ancestral yeah. worship, 
this is the, the the narrative. This is the cultural narrative that drives them. And by the way, I'm not demeaning um, Mal- Malagasy culture or Swazi culture. I sure. could point out some really good ones in the U.S. Yeah. You know, as far as, <laughs> as far as our narratives that are that are messed up. But but so for they us, make, we now they make the news on occasion. But yeah. yeah, yeah, I would say so. And so what we begin to do is build our programs against those narratives. So uh, for us, it's measuring then: are we making an impact? So six weeks after running our program in Madagascar, we would go back to our control audience yeah. um, and ask them the same question. If um, something bad happens to your family, what should you do? And it now goes from 33% down to 11% mm. and actually up to 30% now saying that um, we as a family need to consult God's word. We need to um, talk to our pastoral community. So now if you see fourth to sixth graders, that to me is revival. Yeah, that to yeah. Me is significant impact. Hmm. And um, instead of measuring how many kids raise their hand to accept Christ, yeah. which might be a really good indicator or a really bad indicator. Sure. Because if you do that in a collective African culture, particularly if you're a Westerner coming in and asking kids to respond to you, they're really being a bad kid if they don't sort of right. respond <clears throat> and, and raise their hand. Yeah. Yeah. So is that a good outcome? Probably not, because what you're doing is almost inoculating them to the gospel in that context. Yeah. So, so that's hmm. a very long answer to say, why do we do research? Yeah. Because let's demystify where research is. It's just a discovery of the truth and, and beginning to build with the end in mind and having the ability to measure against that end that your vision and mission is promising it will accomplish. Yeah. So we say God's word never returns void, but it's not the distribution of God's word that brings life. It's the entrance of God's word that brings life. Yeah. Well, well how yeah. do you measure that? And, and you can't measure that if you're not doing research and you're not on a, on a continuous journey towards the truth. And it's not a destination uh, that we reach. It's, it's a constant process that we need to be a part of. Yeah. That's 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 great insight. Uh, you lead a missions organization. Um, so in, in the North American context, if you are doing, you're trying to do better research to inform your strategies. I mean, what sources are you looking at? Who are you paying attention to? Um, yeah. You know, help us think through that. <clears throat> sure. Yeah. So so for us, if we're focused on children and youth, which we are in a North American context. First, we look at secondary research, and there's some great, that's the great thing about being in the American market. There's already a lot of ton of research out there. Mm-hmm. Most of the countries we go to, there's hardly any research that's been done. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the NYSR, the National Youth Study of Religion done by Christian Smith, yeah, great. comes great a great research. baseline. Um, some of Barna's research is really good. Um, you know, some of Lifeway's research. So, so we've, we've already got quite a bit. And, and if you look mm-hmm. at all those studies, they're, they're, they, they all are, uh, and then we did our own. We did what we call our attitude and belief of youth. We did it in 44 countries, including the U.S., uh, to measure spiritual vibrancy. And, and, and across all those, whether it's Pew Research, NYSR Research, Barner Research, Lifeway Research, they, they pretty much all track together. Mm-hmm. And what they say is, I would say the bottom line is what Walter Brueggemann would say. We have a, a, a faith that's widely held and greatly reduced. So, so, so no wonder that um, you know, so many of our young people lose their faith when they go away to college because we have a faith that's widely held but greatly reduced. So, so for us, it was, what's One Hope's call and vision? Because look, this is a really crowded market. We have hundreds of US Christian publishers. We've got entire industries built around children and youth, study Bibles, materials, mm-hmm. Sunday school curriculum. So part of what was like is One Hope, who's worked globally for 30 years, why should we, ever, why should we even be involved in this crowded market? 
Well, the reason is research, because what we found is that uh, we have abysmal biblical illiteracy among our children and young people, and we're not preparing them for a world that is changing so dramatically. And the church is really, in North America, falling behind in the spiritual development of its own children and not preparing them. That's why we've seen in the last 10 years this rise in nuns, Mm -hmm. people that have no religious affiliation at all. Um, Does it mean that Christianity is getting weaker in the West? No, I think it's just being exposed for what it is. Mm. I, think, I think that our spiritual vibrancy of our people is probably the same or maybe even growing. But it's that nominal uh, Christianity and faith that is being taken over by uh, no religious affiliation or even antagonism towards a Christian faith that has become highly politicized. So we, as One Hope, would say, well, what should we do? And what we've said is we've got to go younger. We've got to go thicker, a thicker gospel. Mm-hmm. And we've got to go ubiquitous. We need to be everywhere rather than event-oriented or, or just church-located. Um, sure, going, going thicker and, 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 and being ubiquitous. Yeah. So what does that look like? Are you developing apps? I mean, what are, right. what are so, some of the tools? So one of the things is we, we, we've got to go younger. So mm-hmm. what we said is, um, and we've got to be ubiquitous. Um, and, and so we developed the Bible app for kids. Mm-hmm. We launched it four years ago, uh, in partnership with you version. Yep. And, and what we said is, uh, kids are growing up on these, they're growing up digital. Yeah. Um, we can, we can fight the fact that, you know, we want kids to actually read a printed book, but that's not our fight. I yep. mean, we're just reading the times and understanding what to do. And so, um, we saw that we needed to be in a progress from the crib to college on the spiritual development of our kids. And we see that as, as, a, as a progression from biblical literacy to biblical competency to biblical influence mm-hmm. from the time they're moving from childhood into, into college. And so biblical literacy is really critical. Do they know the stories? Do they know how those stories connect together? So the Bible app for kids was targeted towards getting children to engage with the Scripture at a much younger age at a deeper level and measuring their biblical literacy. Mm-hmm. And so um, now Bible app for kids, we just passed 22 million downloads, uh, 9 million downloads in the U S alone. So um, we really think that we made a major impact uh, with three to six year olds yeah. and measuring the fact that their biblical literacy is growing and we can track that on a digital device. Yeah. So, um, so now we're starting to develop programs to say, okay, what type of programs do we need as they grow into that seven to nine-year-old category? Now they're starting to cognitively be able to have competency. So they not only know the Bible, but they know how to apply the Bible to their to their to the world that they're living in is competency. And then eventually moving into their junior high, high school years of influence to where they're not being influenced by the world, but they're actually influencing the world. Yeah. So, so that's sort of our our paradigm, Daniel, for uh, children and youth spiritual development in North America is moving them from biblical literacy to biblical competence, biblical influence, and to create programs and products that are, um, that are, that are relevant and mm-hmm. dynamic. So they have the right technologies, but they also have the right content. Yeah. My kids, just a plug for the app. I mean, my kids use it. I've got a four-year-old and uh, he can tell you the story of David and Goliath. He can tell you the story of Joseph. It's amazing. You know, yeah. it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, yeah. that's the app, app for me. You know, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's, right. that's, that's this generation, man. Yeah. We're, we're moved out of, uh, you know, the scrolls and the codices and in books and now we're into apps. So 
Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I love it because it's actually you're able to do more. Yeah. I mean, you can't do you can't do gamification with stagnant text. Yeah. Yeah. But we can do right. we can do gamification digitally. That's right. And uh, which is proven has a much higher retention. It's multisensory. So sure. it's, it's music, it's audio, it's oral and, and it's text as well. Yeah. So, um, and it's using all of those great tools that we have available. But uh, many times the church is, is kind of a laggard. And I, and I love it on this one that we're actually a leader. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, because it involves the, the children, the child making a decision, uh, you know, because if he wants to continue, he gets to continue or she gets to continue. So uh, you're not just flipping pages, but you're involving yourself in it, too. So, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, and, and, and gamification is just one of the things that came out of our research as a, as a way to measure whether they're really understanding the, the story. So typical kid in America, tell mm-hmm. me the story, a Christian kid in America, tell me the story of David and Goliath. Mm-hmm. They can tell you the story. Mm-hmm. You know, if they're biblically, quote, literate, they, they're able to repeat the story of David and Goliath. Then you ask those children in our focus groups, okay, what does that story mean to you? And and the, and the number one answer was, uh, even though I'm little, I can overcome anything. Yeah. Very individualistic, very narcissistic. <laughs> Very American. Mm -hmm. And and so they have no idea who Israel is in that story. Mm. They have no idea who David is. They have no idea who Jesus is. And so ultimately, they really don't know who they are in that story. Mm. We really haven't given them a a meta-narrative construct uh, for all these stories that are being told. What we've done is we've just applied them um, in, in ways that we feel would be attractional to a child in an American context. So in that sense, we're not really doing much better than Swaziland or Madagascar. Yeah, yeah. Uh, We're just sort of, um, we just sort of are acclimating ourselves to the existing American narrative of individualism and narcissism and materialism in many ways. So, so how do we bring the counter-cultural narrative from the scripture, even at that very young age, into the Bible app for kids, clear through to, to our catechisms and, our, uh, and, 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 and training up our young people to be church planners, mm-hmm. to be future leaders of the American church is really what the passion of One Hope is. Yeah, well, yeah. I read something the other day uh, about how much of our American spiritual uh, spirituality is built around kind of that Emerson, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson kind of transcendentalism. It's very me-centered um, philosophy and um and part of the resurgence that we're seeing and you know millennials at least saying you know we want community we want communities they're realizing that in, in to a certain degree spirituality can't be just an individualistic uh, activity it needs to be done no i mean i mean this generation uh is is craving community yeah. right i mean that's that's what they all say and the other thing they say is they they uh they they really crave authenticity so mm-hmm. the, the, those are sort of i want community and i want authenticity uh but they they want it without accountability because of our individualistic mindset and mentality. Well, there is no community without accountability. Mm -hmm. And this is in many ways a fatherless and motherless generation um, because of our driving individualism. So what we found globally is that there were three attributes of a spiritually vibrant child and young person. And these three attributes were like three legs to a a stool. You can't remove one of them and really raise a spiritually vibrant young person. And, and those three things were the same, by the way, across all religions, not just Christianity. Mm-hmm. So this is whether you were a good Buddhist, Muslim, or Christian. And, and, and the three things remain the same. Number one is family. Are, are you part of a family that, that loves you and that you feel secure and safe in? So, so that, that's, that's number one in, in, in spiritual and, and 
Number two was, are, are you part of an accountable community? Mm-hmm. Well, that's the church, right? And then third, do you believe in an authoritative text? So whether that's the Quran or the Bible. So, so those become the three pillars of, of, of spiritual development for us among children and young people. Um, what is their family context? And in many cases, we don't have, you know, this is not our grandma's America. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a radically different America with the, uh, with the decimation of the extended family. Uh, increasingly, even in the nuclear family, has been ripped apart. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in some cases, the church has, has to really develop our people to step in and be family, spiritual family to our children and young people. Yeah. So, so family, accountable community, and then an authoritative text. So those really become the driving forces of creating a, a thick gospel narrative, like I talked about, from literacy all the way through influence. Uh, the church really establishing an accountable community, not just a place where kids can come and get entertained, or where they can come and uh, have a therapeutic Jesus, Um are a, a, you know, but that they can really understand the community of the church um, as Christ's community and to become accountable to that is where real authenticity is going to flow out of. And then equipping our families, um, whether they be our natural born parents or raising up spiritual fathers and mothers for this generation, I think is the critical work of the church as our culture is changing so dramatically at this moment in time in history. Um, and, and that's why I'm passionate about one hope getting more involved in North America. Yeah, man, that's great. I, I want to <clears throat> change things a little bit, um, as we kind of wrap up our conversation here, uh, cause you lead a missions organization and you know that, uh, giving is different now. The way that people think about, uh, missions work is different now. Um, what, what, what are the funding models? I mean, what's the state of funding missions from your perspective now? I mean, is it sustainable? Are there other alternatives? Uh, what are your thoughts about that? I I think, you know, I'll I'll give three points on this. I teach a lot about this everywhere. Um, and I would say number one, the funding model still works. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think that the donor quote donor model still works. Um, I just think we have to change our approach to that model. Mm. So um, when I took over the the donor development part of One Hope, you know, nearly about 20 years ago now, I really said instead of being a mile wide and an inch deep, we want to be an inch wide and a mile deep. So so our donor file actually over the last 20 years has moved from about 50,000 people down to about 10,000 people. Mm-hmm. And, and what I said is, look, we don't want everybody to be partners with One Hope. We want people that are passionate that see one of the key characteristics of their life is love for God's word and the love for children and youth. And, and we want to build deep intrinsic partnerships and relationships with those donors. So, so we have seen our, our donor base shrink smaller, which really reduces um, getting into this, uh, you know, kind of commercial consumeristic type of donor uh, acquisition and development, Mm -hmm. which to me is just, a failed broken system Mm. um, and really building strong relationships with our partners that see themselves as key stakeholders. And we've seen our dramatic uh, increase in the percentage of donation coming uh, from each one of our partners and donors. So it's a smaller pool of people that are deeply committed to what we're doing and 
you know, just as a tangible, in the last 20 years, we've seen our giving grow from about 10 million a year to over 40 million a year in actual wow. donor uh, yeah. in, in donations. Yeah. So, so I haven't given up on the donor model. We're seeing yeah. the greatest trend, uh, transitional wealth in human history happening right yeah, now. Yeah, right. You're right. And so, yeah, so the, the money is not problem. The, the pro- problem isn't money. I mean, um, and the problem isn't the donor model. The problem is, are we developing? So we developed something that we call a culture of engagement, which is eliminating sort of professional fundraising. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and every person at One Hope is involved in telling the story of One Hope and building relationships with partners. So that's what we call culture of engagement. So I haven't given up on the donor model. Number two, it's collaboration. Donors are sick of ministries that don't talk to each other, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. are trying to do the same thing, that don't have a particular niche, and that aren't working with each other. So the second uh, thing for me is building strong collaboratives with the other ministries that are in your space. So, so I, I actively pursue partnerships with other children and youth ministries. I'm act- actively pursuing partnerships with other scripture engagement hmm. because we're part of the kingdom together. Yeah. And so um, let's let the left hand know what the right hand's doing. And what I found is that saves you an awful lot of money hmm. for you to get great at what you're great at and to partner with someone who's great at what they do and for us to collaborate together. Um, and, and, and that to me saves a lot, an awful lot of resource by avoiding duplication and building better outcome-based programs. And, um, and, and so I, I think those two things are absolutely uh, key and, and, and critical for us. And then the third is creating economically sustainable models. So we at One Hope actually have incubated, um, if you wanna call them businesses, some of them we've actually spun off and sold and that money goes into our endowment, and that endowment is solely there to create sustainable um, business models. Um, you know, we've had too much of a charity mentality in missions, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so America is one of the most charitable nations in the world. But um, it's it's interesting to me that most American evangelicals are conservative, and we hate the welfare system but we're really good at propagating it around the world through our mystiology. So, so what we want to do is instead of creating charity models is creating economically sustainable models in what we're doing with mm-hmm. children and youth scripture engagement. So in some cases that means building national indigenous publishing where materials that can be sold should be sold. And that money goes back into that market where we don't have to pour more donation money into that market because yeah. there will always be there will always be markets that necessitate donation. If you're talking about unreached people groups, people that don't have the Bible in their own language, that that requires us to be charitable. That requires us to not expect that those people have the ability to pay for the mission work that's right. being done. But man alive, we have created way too much dependency in markets that don't need to be dependent upon the West any longer. We are only a fourth of the global church is, is the Western church today. You know, 75% is the emerging world church, and they want to be independent. Mm-hmm. The only way for us to do that is to build economically sustainable uh, programs. And so I would say those are the three things that, that we as One Hope is focused on, is go more narrow and go deeper with a fewer amount of partners, create better collaboratives with other ministries to actually save money and avoid duplication, and to build economically sustainable rather than just charitable is how we've, we've built our, uh, in our vision 2030, is how we're building our, our financial pipeline for the mission and vision that God's given us. Man, that's fantastic. And I, <clears throat> those three things, I think if you take that and you apply it to 
church planting organizations, the way that they think about urban ministries or planting in exactly. the urban poor. Same thing. Yeah, same same concept. I, actually, I talked with a church planner the other day, and very innovative uh, uh, person. And they're starting an organization, and he says we're it's for profit, not because we're trying to make you know lucrative uh, income. It's for profit because in paying taxes, we're giving back to this neighborhood that's been devastated. And yeah. so uh, it's having that foresight to think that way. So. Yeah, and, and particularly in urban areas, yeah. you know, we talk about church planting movements in rural areas, and we can get really excited because we can plant a church, you know, for a few a thousand dollars, and we can actually build a building for a few hundred dollars by providing some clay bricks. You know, you, you look at Mumbai, Nairobi, mm. Singapore, um, and and just about anywhere in the world now, in a, in a super urban context, Beijing, those are the highest property values. You can't plant a church right. and have a and have a building or a facility without investing tens of thousands of dollars every month. So, so our mentality and model has to change mm-hmm. because our missions model says, wow, I can plant a thousand churches in Africa for a hundred thousand dollars, or I can try and invest partial of a hundred thousand to try and plant one urban church in Moscow. It's just not as sexy for us. Mm-hmm. So what we have to realize is if we're really going to reach the world, we've got to go super urban. Mm-hmm. And, and traditionally, we haven't done a very good job of that around the world or even here in the United States. Yeah. And so we have to have different models, and a lot of them have to be financially sustainable models. So, you know, think about planting a business. Think about planting a school that is actually your platform for church planning is what we're seeing a lot of our really effective urban church planners doing around the world. So One Hope is actually helping plant schools with our church partners in superurban areas because it creates income. Mm-hmm. It also creates relationship through the children with their parents to where you become a, you're bringing value to them in the context of the city by bringing quality. And in some cases, American medium education into markets that are highly desirous for it, but you're also creating. So if you're, if you're training to be a missionary right now, I would really look at, uh, becoming a classic tent maker, but in the space of education or business enterprise or technology in order to provide value, uh, in order for you to bless Babylon, move into the city, live there, right? The Jeremiah passage. Yeah. Um, and as, and as the city is blessed, so are you, as you're providing value economically to the city, then God will bless you. And you actually have the capacity now to plan an urban church that's financially sustainable. Yeah. And, and that's a kingdom engagement model. So that's fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I want to give you a chance uh, to speak prophetically uh, to those who lead church planting organizations. And our listenership, I mean, probably about 75% of church planting in North America um, that we're involved in, um, you know, speaking into their lives and speaking into the organizations. If you can sit them in a room and you had a chance to tell them one thing, that you cannot lead your organizations towards the future without considering this one thing. What would uh, what would it be for for Rob Hoskins? Oh my goodness! Wow. Well, uh, I only get one thing. That's really hard for me. <laughs> my mind doesn't track that way. I think much more holistically. I don't think sure. there's a silver bullet solution to anything. But yeah. since, since since you're making me do that, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna put on my one hope hat mm-hmm. and worry about children and youth. Mm-hmm. So I would say, as church planning ministries, take spiritual fathering and mothering super seriously. Um, what are you doing to build a strong pipeline? of leaders who not only are talented and knowledgeable, because this generation is, they're so talented, they're so knowledgeable, but do they have character and wisdom? And and that only comes through spiritual fathering and mothering. And so are we being intentional about that? Um, Do you as a church planning movement um, have the capacity to grow up spiritual sons and daughters, to be your 
church planters. Um, because what I'm running into all day long with my church planting friends in, in my tribe, whether it be the Assemblies of God Pentecostal, the ARC movement, um, you know, we can get things started, but to sustain them, you need character and wisdom in your leaders. And, and that only happens when you have mentors and when you have spiritual fathers. And so I've had to do that here at One Hope. We have an entire funnel we use that I'm happy to share with anybody that wants it. But I really, our goal within Vision 2030 is to raise up 100,000 spiritual sons and daughters uh, of the movement over the next, over the next uh, 12 years. And we've gotten super intentional about how we're doing that. Um, we've got to become great spiritual fathers and mothers. I've got to do that personally. I've got to model that as the, as the leader of One Hope. All my VPs, all our regional directors, all our national directors need to personally be involved in fathering and mothering the next generation uh, to be passionate about uh, the kingdom and the mission and the vision that we're involved in. And I think church planning movements have to do the same exact thing. There are many faithful mission organizations that are fruitfully serving children all around the world with God's love, but organizations like One Hope are leading the way in giving every child in the world access to God's Word. Uh, their relentless passion for children and youth has led them to a kind of ministry innovation that really few are doing today. And Rob gave us a huge reminder that although charitable giving has seemed to gone down over the last recent years, when it comes to funding a kingdom vision, people still understand the need and they will respond. So don't be afraid to lead your organization's vision to innovate because if you know that what you're innovating is providing people opportunities to hear the gospel that otherwise they wouldn't have, then whatever you do, people will come around it. Can you do me a favor? Can you subscribe to our podcast? Let others know about it. You can also share this episode on Twitter and Facebook. Just tell people about it. And if you have any questions or comments, go to sendinstitute.org. Shoot me an email. I'd love to hear from you. See you in our next episode.